This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. Okay, so ask yourself this question. When exactly do professional athletes go to the bathroom? Seriously, think about this. It's the middle of the second quarter in a football game. You're a 300-and-something-pound lineman. You've been drinking all the Gatorade in sight because it's an 85-degree day, and the trainer always tells you to hydrate more. And then, suddenly, that familiar urge starts to wash over you, and you can't exactly jog off to find the closest bathroom. As it turns out, pee breaks are a universal constant, something every single athlete has to contend with one way or another. But it's not just a matter of answering nature's call. New research says holding back the flow can have a drastic effect on decision-making, problem-solving, and other functions that are key to highly trained athletes. In today's show, Dave Fleming literally goes for the gold as athletes from across the world of sports break the seal on their potty break stories and how knowing when to pee can change the outcome of a game. Coming up later, join me for the conversation with Dave where he explains what it's like to ask Brandy Chastain if she's ever given herself a yellow card. And trust me, there's a lot more puns than that. Here's It's Go Time. It's Go Time. No one can resist nature's call, but for athletes, knowing when to let it flow can be the difference between victory and defeat. By David Fleming. As Jordan Gross jogged off the field at Bank of America Stadium against the Giants, Panthers fans cheered and high-fived him without knowing exactly where he was headed. Gross just couldn't ignore the urge any longer. Maybe it was the humidity or all that sweet tea, but in 2013, after a decade of playing tackle in Carolina, Gross had finally reached his bathroom breaking point. It's simple math, really. Players drink gallons of water but can't leave the field for even 30 seconds for fear of a turnover happening midstream. Over the years, Gross has tried every technique NFL players and other hyper-hydrated athletes use to surreptitiously relieve themselves during games. He'd experimented with the time-honored slow release into his pants, but they were white, for starters, and it just left Gross feeling soggy and slow. He kind of enjoyed the TP curtain method, going inside a hut of towels or parkas. But worrying that his teammates would prank him by walking away mid-flow occasionally gave Gross stage fright a.k.a. pyuresis, or what urologists refer to as ballpark bladder. His tight pants, no-fly spandex, and all the tape on his gloved hands and mangled fingers made it cumbersome to kneel behind the bench and pee into a cup, a method that was so popular among his teammates that rookies often had a hard time differentiating which cups contained actual Gatorade. And so, in one of the final home games of his career, during a TV timeout with the defense on the field, the three-time Pro Bowl blocker figured he had nothing to lose. He would proudly march off the field toward a small bathroom used mostly by field staff, where for once he could pee in peace. Or so he thought. Inside the bathroom, Gross was almost immediately slip-sliding around the polished concrete floor in his cleats and struggling mightily with his gloves and pants. When his sweaty, dirty shoulder pads bumped the temple of a fan in a Cam Newton jersey next to him, Gross realized proper urinal etiquette required him to attempt small talk. Heck of a game, Gross blurted with a nod to the dumbfounded fan. The guy is staring at me and I'm fully aware of how weird this situation is, and now it's all delaying the pee process, says Gross, who, sources say, was in too much of a hurry to wash his hands. Poor guy probably paid a fortune for a field pass because he wanted to know what it was like behind the scenes at a big-time sporting event. Well, now he knows. 
The sheer frequency and powerful pull of the pee brake makes urine perhaps the most influential and disruptive liquid in sports. In fact, the most basic of bodily functions is such a potent force that it causes even the most disciplined, trained bodies in the world to do some wonderfully weird and occasionally revolting things. Every single athlete has to deal with this in a different way, but one thing is the same: no one ever talks about it. Says Jocelyn Lamoureux Davidson of the U.S. Women's National Hockey Team, "It's a pretty universal thing we all share, relative to everybody. Everyone has to go." In 2012, Angels pitcher Jared Weaver was just three outs from a no-hitter when faced with that familiar conundrum. To everyone's great shock, Weaver dismissed more than a century of baseball superstition and bolted off the bench and down into the clubhouse bathroom with his knees pinched. That's just how ferocious nature's call can be. Sports immortality suddenly pales in comparison to the sweet relief that comes with release. Weaver, though, returned to the mound and, unburdened, put away three more batters to become the tenth pitcher in Angels history to throw a no-hitter. By taking relief duties into his own hands, Weaver made a decision that validated a groundbreaking paper published the same year by Brown University. In it, neurology professor Pete Snyder found that the painful need to urinate impairs higher-order cognitive functions, things like rapid decision-making, problem-solving, and working memory, on a level analogous with drunken driving. Imagine you're an athlete. You've just consumed a ridiculous amount of liquid on a hot day. You can't get off the field, and you're in terrible pain. Snyder says, "When we're in pain, our first reaction is to act like any other animal and lessen the pain and get out of harm's way, no matter what." Snyder explains that there are centers deep within the brain that maintain homeostasis or normal bodily functions such as breathing, heartbeat, and urination. The pain and disruption caused by holding urine for too long essentially sets off alarms that dampen cognitive activities in the frontal lobes, the ones athletes especially rely on, in order for the body to manage more proximal problems. Snyder fed his subjects 250 milliliters of water, roughly 8.5 ounces, every 15 minutes until they reached their breaking point. That intake, though, is just a drop in a bucket compared with what most elite athletes must consume in a never-ending process of keeping their bodies hydrated through daily cycles of perspiration, urination, and rehydration. A 300-pound football player needs 192 ounces of water daily to maintain normal hydration. On game day in hot climates. He'll need another 128 ounces to replace the gallon or so of body weight he'll sweat out in the trenches. That means his intake on Sundays alone should be roughly enough to fill a small fish tank. And Snyder says the pain caused by trying to hold back all that fluid can create the same level of cognitive impairment as staying awake for 24 hours straight. All of which led Snyder to a single deeply scientific conclusion for athletes: When you gotta go, go for the gold. Thanks to Snyder's study, it now makes perfect sense why Michael Phelps, the greatest Olympian of all time, admits he lets loose in the pool. It might even provide a scientific explanation for the Red Sox phenomenon known as Manny being Manny. In 2005, during a pitching change in Boston, outfielder Manny Ramirez claims to have stepped into the green monster to relieve himself, an urge so bad he almost missed a pitch. I'm just glad he came back," said Sox skipper Terry Francona. It also explains one of the NFL's dirty little secrets. At any given moment on a sideline, someone probably is relieving himself while hiding it in plain sight, or trying to. Former Dolphins linebacker Channing Crowder's solution was fairly simple. He says he wet his pants in every one of his 82 games as a pro. 
As the Chargers drove toward a late field goal in 2011, kicker Nick Novak got caught kneeling by the bench mid-act, thanks to a CBS camera that lingered just long enough for the shot to include a graphic that suggested Novak's target was the 34-yard line. He fell a little short. He also missed a 53-yard field goal. In Detroit last season, a Lions fan attending the game with her two children captured Washington Special Teams coordinator Ben Kutwika, relieving himself next to an equipment crate adorned with the NFL logo. Although the box failed to provide any actual cover, it did create an exquisite moment of brand marketing with the resulting viral photo, which captured Kutwika fully exposed and in full stream just inches from the revered NFL shield. Public urination in Detroit anywhere other than the Lions' sideline can cost you up to a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. But there are no rules against bathroom breaks in Roger Goodell's NFL. And so it is that players celebrating too much after a touchdown can often expect a hefty fine, while coaches and players are free to do the pee-pee dance on the AstroTurf. Guys are peeing all over the sideline in every game, into cups, on the ground, in towels, behind the bench, in their pants, everywhere says Panthers center Ryan Khalil, who covered this topic and others in The Rookie Handbook, co-authored by Gross and Jeff Hangartner. You'd be surprised, honestly, how many players on the sidelines just go. I guess as athletes, we are all desensitized by the whole peeing everywhere thing. When it comes to urination, elite male athletes fall victim to a funny kind of Superman complex. Flying around in a skin-tight bodysuit and zipperless codpiece, what does Superman do if, God forbid, he needs to pee in the middle of saving Metropolis for the 87th time? Our minds don't associate athletes with something as vulnerable or mundane as needing to pee. As a result, they often perform in billion-dollar facilities that have retractable roofs and moon-sized video screens, but lack a single toilet within reach of the field. There is this level of invincibility and superhero-ness to what we do as athletes, says former NFL lineman and ESPN analyst Mark Schlereth, whose infamous in-game toilet habits helped earn him the nickname Stink. It's like that children's book, Everyone Poops. In sports, everybody pees. But the need to stay hydrated, combined with a maze of cultural hang-ups and poorly designed facilities, creates a nightmare for athletes who are just looking for a bathroom break. So many runners in the New York City Marathon pee off the sides of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge at mile one that race veterans can only giggle when they hear first-timers below them on the lower deck talk about the sudden, refreshing rainstorm they experienced. World-class cyclists still speak in awe of the balletic way former Tour de France racer Dave Zabriskie was able to straighten his right leg, stand tall in the saddle, and urinate off the side of his bike while whizzing through the French countryside at 30 miles per hour. In 2005, when Zabriskie became just the third American to wear the appropriately named yellow jersey, it earned him the privilege, according to the tour's unwritten rules, to decide when, where, and for how long the peloton was allowed to pee. That's when you know you've made it in our sport, says former teammate Christian Vandeveld. It's like, I just made the whole peloton stop and pee. I'm the man. Because of cultural and anatomical obstacles, female athletes are forced to plan better and hold longer than their male counterparts. Members of the U.S. women's hockey team have even been known to use the expulsion of urine to measure the force of an opponent's checks. After a big hit, says team member Monique Lamoureux-Mirando, you get to the bench and people are joking about it. And you just go, yeah, crap, she just made me tingle a little. Brandy Chastain, a member of the iconic 1999 U.S. women's national soccer team, leaked into her cleats only once during one of her first World Cup practices in Haiti. She remembers it fondly. 
absolutely liberating, she says. It's hard to feel loose when you have that kind of tension in your bladder. If a glimpse of Chastain's sports bra after her cup-winning penalty kick in 1999 caused such a ridiculous uproar, she can't even imagine what fans would do if a player today copped a squat by the U.S. bench during a game, as so many of her male counterparts do. That single disparity can often leave female athletes at a significant disadvantage. It's common for female athletes to drink less and therefore perform worse simply because they're worried about how or where they'll go to the bathroom. During a recent U.S. Olympic Committee golf outing in Oregon, when Chastain mentioned this dilemma, a female golfer in her foursome cursed out the male-dominated world of golf course design, then produced something called P-Mate. The disposable cardboard device, made by a company in Broomsfield, Colorado, allows women to pee in public while standing. I was a little embarrassed at first, Chastain says. Then I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. It's very different for the rest of us. You can't just squat in the middle of a women's World Cup game. Male athletes can just create their own bathroom. It's a gift they don't always use responsibly. Plagued by blisters on his pitching hand in 2016, the Dodgers' Rich Hill peed on his fingers. It's an old-school remedy that dates back to former major leaguers Moises Alou and Jorge Posada, who didn't use batting gloves because they believed trace amounts of urea in their urine toughened their skin. Urea is a common ingredient in commercial moisturizing creams. Posada used to warn, you don't want to shake my hand during spring training. Some sports do take a more palatable and humane approach to the act of urination, but proper facilities and protocols are still no match against million dollars in prize money. At Grand Slam tennis events, men are permitted two potty breaks during five-set matches. Women get two for three-set matches. On the matter of urination, the rules read like a junior high student handbook, allowing competitors to leave the court for a reasonable time for a toilet break, while falling just short of asking Roger Federer to put the seat down when finished. Since the potty provision's inception, however, tennis players have been exploiting the pee-break rule for strategic advantage, proving there is no level elite athletes will not stoop, or squat to, in order to gain the slightest advantage. In the 2010 Australian Open, after losing the first set of his quarterfinal match, Federer killed time in the can while allowing the blinding sun to dip below the stands. In 2012, Andy Murray won the first two sets of his U.S. Open Finals match, but when the next two slipped away, he sheepishly signaled to the umpire and tiptoed off the court, disappearing into a one-toilet restroom under Arthur Ashe Stadium. As the crowd and Novak Djokovic waited, Murray later told the New York Times he stood alone in front of the mirror, screaming at his reflection, You are not going to let this one slip. He was speaking of the match, one presumes, which he battled back to win after one of the most fortuitous pee breaks in sports history. Whether it's a faint or a full flow, bathroom breaks such as Murray's can make all the difference in becoming a champion. This happens much more than fans would ever realize, says renowned boxing trainer Freddie Roach. Knowing how an athlete's brain works, if all you can think about is needing to take a piss, that's going to get you knocked out or worse. So if finding a way to take a leak means helping you win, any trainer or any athlete in any sport would do the same thing. You might say Roach learned this lesson firsthand while training James Tony for his 2003 fight against Evander Holyfield. Boxing's golden rule is clear. Never put the gloves on early before a big fight. Once they're secure and the tape is initialed by a boxing commission official, they can't come off. After that, if a fighter is overcome by the combination of pre-fight hydration and jitters, his entourage has to play a high-stakes game of not it.
Moments before he was supposed to be in the ring, Tony turned to Roach with a look on his face every trainer dreads. He's gotten the same look from Manny Pacquiao a few times in recent years. With Holyfield waiting and the Mandalay Bay crowd growing louder and more restless by the second, Roach, out of options, shimmied his hand up the left side of Tony's black silk boxing trunks. Roach went left because the name of Tony's children were stitched on the right side of his trunks. Why he went up the shorts instead of down is simple. He's a damn pro. Best way to do it, he says. Pull the cup out, pull the junk down, look the other way. When boxer and trainer sheepishly exited the bathroom, Roach figured the incident was mercifully over. Heading to the ring, though, Tony blurted out, Oh, Fred, that was so good. You were so gentle. Loose, unencumbered, and 14 to 18 ounces lighter, Tony survived a sluggish start and a brutal shot to the kidneys at the end of round one before pummeling Holyfield into submission in the ninth. To this day, every time Tony sees Roach, he reminds him loudly about their Mandalay moment. Roach always grumbles back the same thing he said that night as Tony leaned toward the urinal. Damn it, James, I don't even like holding my own. Sooner or later, though, everyone, players, coaches, even trainers, must come to grips with the most unstoppable force in sports. No one has to tell me about the importance of pee breaks in sports, Roach says. Yes, I haven't heard the end of it yet. And that was It's Go Time, written by Dave Fleming. Dave is with us now to go inside the story. Dave, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, Dave, tell me where this idea uh, for the for pee breaks came from. This is this is an area that you are perhaps have some some history with when it comes to athletes and and bodily functions. <laughs> yes, I think that's a nice way to put it. Um, <laughs> We have, over the years, I think really almost as an editorial side to the body issue, we've created what is affectionately known as the undercarriage anthology, um, which is a series of, I think, now six or seven stories um, about athletes' bodies and bodily functions um, that have sort of found a home in the body issue. And... um, that sort of deal with uh, things that, that athletes have to deal with that nobody ever talks about. So we've done athletes who have lost control of their bowels. We've done testicles. We've done the importance of glutes. We've done the strange ritual of the team shower. And to that uh, historic group, we add um, tea breaks. <laughs> So we worked on this story, and obviously there's a lot of fun to be had with with something like you know talking about it's a, it's a potty break. Um, but you you approached this in a very serious way and wanted to look at what what some of the implications and and uh, sort of health effects were in this. Yeah, and I think that's what we that's what always makes these stories work is that we get readers' attention with sort of the incredible, with the fact that we're going to go there with some of these topics. Um, and a lot of the stuff is gross and funny and, um, and disturbing. And, and that always gets the readers' attention. But if you don't educate them and actually show them the actual sort of side effects of pushing the human body beyond its limits in athletics – then they it there's they're they're just they're just gag reels right they're just it's just slapstick and so 
again, with this story, I think one of the keys was realizing that there are that that female athletes um, have a big uh, problem and things to deal with as far as hydration and urination. And then on top of that, that there's actually been uh, neurological studies that show the cognitive effects of holding your urine for too long because and maybe that sort of backs up why all these athletes are going literally everywhere all the time. <laughs> well, well, tell us a little bit more about that research. How did you find it? And, and what are the implications there specifically uh, for, for sort of the, the cognitive functions and reasoning that athletes uh, have to go through, obviously, in the heat of any game? It was, I was stunned when I found this. I, we've always been able to find... Uh, some kind of medical or sociological uh, connection that makes these stories um, more serious than, or, or gives them actually a scientific, interesting, serious, thoughtful side to what could be just a gross story. And this one was one of the most amazing discoveries of the whole group of stories in that uh, a, a neuro- neurological researcher from Brown University in 2011 or 2012 Um, did a study on um, cognitive function and how it diminishes after you begin to hold your urine beyond the point of pain. And what he found was um, for people who who have to uh, uh, hold their their pee to the point where it becomes painful, your your cognitive function um, decreases to to something that is equal to drunk driving or being awake for 24 hours straight. And I think for both you and I, right, this was like an aha moment where it was like, okay, now this isn't just stories about athletes peeing their pants or peeing in public. This is actually explains why they're doing it, because a lot of the cognitive functions that you lose are the, the exact things that athletes need um, to be great as far as like decision making and memory and um, and problem solving. So there was actually this really weird revelatory um, discovery, scientific discovery that kind of says, oh, okay, maybe these, these athletes, they're onto something. So with the athletes in this piece in particular, though, how do you approach someone when you are doing a story about pee breaks? How do you approach it with a professional athlete and say, so I want to talk about the time that you peed your pants. What, what was that approach like and how did you get these athletes to open up? Okay, so I guess I, I guess it's a gift or a curse, um, but I would so much rather ask an athlete a unique question that no one's ever asked them before than ask them about, um, you know, the their third down carry for three yards um, in the AFC championship game or their sprained ankle. or um, So I don't mind doing it at all. And the other thing is, you know, I've already asked athletes about uh, losing control of their bowels and what it's like to shower um, with their teammates. So at this point, it was like, oh, asking them about peeing their pants is, um, you know, that's the, that would be easy. And I know you and I laughed and talked about this, too, is what happens with the story is you, uh, we, you know, you pitch it, you guys agree to it. And then I sit there with an empty notebook and go, oh, my God, no one's going to talk to me about how am I going to get people to talk to me about this? <laughs> And literally, and I remember emailing you and going like two weeks later, I'm like, I can't, it's, it, you always start out with, uh, 
you're worried you can't, you won't be able to get anybody to talk to you about pee breaks. And then literally 10 interviews in, you're like, I can't get athletes to stop talking about peeing their pants. <laughs> and that's, I remember that specifically. Um, I think I reached that point where, because I really do think, I mean, athletes, they want to talk about this stuff too. It's just that nobody ever asks. And that's when you know you've landed on what I think is a great, a uh, great story, a great idea, a great concept is that these guys are like, oh my God, I'm so glad somebody finally asked me about that because it's actually something every athlete in every event at every level has to deal with, but nobody ever asks them about it. And I think for me, the tipping point was, I mean, Brandy Chastain from the 1990, 1999 um, women's national soccer team, right? She's an icon. She is maybe one of the most famous, one of the most iconic athletes uh, I've ever talked to. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I, if I, can't, I can't listen to one more athlete piece story. <laughs> so when you are talking to these athletes, um, I guess I'm wondering which one of the stories that you heard, the anecdotes, was your favorite? Which one to you was maybe the most unique or the one that kind of caught you by surprise? Oh man, there's, there's so many. I, I think for me, the boxing one, because that was one where when we were talking and planning this story, right? The reporting, I mean, that was sort of like someone threw that out as like the dream anecdote. Like somebody had heard from somebody else who had known somebody in boxing who thought this might actually happen. And then, um, you know, we, I probably the first five boxing people I reached out to just were not helpful and not didn't get it and just were not um, uh, just were not understanding what we were after. And it was just one of those things where I talked to one guy who told me to call another guy who gave me the number of a third guy who had an email for the right trainer. And then 30 seconds into that phone call, um, you know, Freddie Roach is telling me the story about uh, James Tony before his fight against Evander Holyfield. And that's when you're silently pumping your fist going, okay, we have a story. Now. <laughs> <It's> actually, <laughs> this is a story. <laughs> so the other, the other part of this though, is that there's, there's a little bit of strategy that's involved, not just in, in, in how athletes um, do relieve themselves, but the fact that sometimes pee breaks can be, used for advantages. Was that something you were expecting? And how did you find out a lot about that? I, it slipped my mind or I didn't, wasn't expecting that, but knowing, um, I mean, you and I both know, right. If there is, if you can improve your, if an elite athlete can improve their chances or their performance by 1%, they, they will absolutely do it. It doesn't matter what it is, how gross it is, how weird it is. Um, they will absolutely do it. So I should have known better that, um, that, that there would be these anecdotes or these incidents, but um, I thought it was an act. It was a really interesting twist too, because I think part of the part, a big part of the story is, you know, that we, we, we think of athletes in a way that we would never connect them to something as mundane and sort of, uh, uh, average as actually having to go to the bathroom during a, during a game. So that creates a lot of problems because no one expects this or no one 
So half the story is kind of like, oh, give these guys a break, you know, let them go to the bathroom or provide a, a place for them to go to the bathroom like, like normal human beings. And then I love the flip side of that is, you know, the sports that did actually provide a humane and normal way, sanitary way for these guys to guys and women to go to the bathroom, the athletes immediately took advantage of that, you know? So it's like damned if you do and damned if you don't. But I just thought, um, what in an, it was in a weird way, it's such great insight into the mind and the bodies of these elite athletes, right? That they would, they would use, someone would give them a bathroom break at Wimbledon and they would use that at strategically almost immediately. Um, <laughs> I, I, it was fascinating. It was, it was really interesting, uh, that part of it. And you touched on something else that that's a part of this piece, and I think we were both thinking about this a lot, but why do you think there is this conception of, that, that people don't think of athletes having to do this? You know, we sort of refer to it as the Superman complex in this case, and, you know, nobody really thinks of when Superman actually, when, when he goes to the bathroom, but well, why do you think it is that we don't really think of this as something that, that athletes have to do and that could affect their game? See, I thought this was really interesting, too, from a from a fan's perspective, right, a reader's perspective, that it's like, I think this will actually open people's eyes, too, that we we this is insightful in, in how we um, how we we think of these athletes, because it, it's amazing if you think about. Um, and I think this line is in the story, right, that that we're building and the NFL builds billion dollar football stadiums that have ginormous jumbotrons and state-of-the-art field turf and just every imaginable, um, you know, uh, electronic and, and technical, um, the, the, all the latest, greatest stuff. But they, but they forget to actually provide a toilet, um, you know, that you can get at Lowe's for $75 for the athletes to go to the bathroom. And so, I, there is like this deep seated. We we think so highly in our society and culture of these athletes that we 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 our brains won't let us associate them with something as mundane as 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 just like we are when we drink too much coffee and we're driving around town. You know, urgently having to go to the bathroom to the point where we're willing to sacrifice everything just to just to relieve ourselves. We never think of athletes like that, but it turns out. <laughs> this is one of the few things that where athletes and fans are exactly alike when it has, <laughs> when it comes to having to go to the bathroom. Well, in writing this, what was it like to try to balance the need to sometimes be clinical and straightforward, but at other times, you know, trying to find as many puns and euphemisms as possible for, for the act of peeing. Well, I should ask you that question because you're the one who had to clean up. <laughs> I mean, it literally, well, you and I remember, it's like, I, like we couldn't even, it gets to a point where you can't even exchange emails or text messages without inadvertently throwing in a urination pun right. into, your, into your emails. And so I think the writing turns out that way too. It's just, it becomes, it's too easy. And there were even, it was even a point where I'm just writing to write. And then I would read over a paragraph and go, Oh my God, there's three P puns in that paragraph. And I didn't even intend them to be in there. So I think, I mean, that was one of the things I think that you and Neely, um, you did such a really good job of, uh, of, of it 
toning that down. Um, I think the fact that I've done so many of these kinds of stories makes me, um, I'm, I have to go, I'm so used to this kind of stuff and this kind of language and this kind of topic that uh, for, for it to sort of shock and interest me, the language has to go, you know, to 11. And you guys were really smart about sort of dialing that stuff back and uh, helping me pick the right places to kind of use that funny kind of language. Um, Cause if not, then it just becomes too slapsticky. So, I mean, we all just um, wanted it to flow nicely. I think at the end of the day, <laughs> yes, it was, you know, it turned out it's golden. too easy. It's just too easy. To yeah. It's, it's, it was just a golden opportunity. And on those puns, I think we should probably walk <laughs> away. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Appreciate it. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash double truck. This episode was produced and engineered by the team at ESPN Audio. We'll be back soon with more stories. I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.